a little bit of, uh, of reminder for us here that Isaiah begins this section of the Bible now that's known as the, the books of prophecy, this prophetic section now that really takes us right from here to, uh, to the end of the Old Testament. And what's really neat is that uh, Isaiah is divided up itself kind of like a mini Bible. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. 66 books in the Bible. 39, first 39, making up the Old Testament. The next 27, making up the New Testament. So the book of Isaiah neatly divides itself up that way from these first 39 chapters, kind of referring to kind of like the context of the Old Testament where there's just sort of, you know, sin is, is at play and, and rebellion against God in a sense. God's looking to work with the people, but there's judgment that just keeps getting stirred up and, and reminded among the nations. And so this first 39 chapters of Isaiah have been dealing exactly with that. It's kind of this judgment of God um, being poured out. But then as we move into now the next section of Isaiah where we pick it up here in chapter 40, we move into this glorious light now of God's grace and this comfort that's being shown to them here. Let me just remind you that the outline that we're looking at here, um, prophecies of judgment, chapters 1 to 39, and then chapters 40 to 66 are these prophecies of peace. And that's what we're going to be focused on here tonight. Now, Again, we don't know a lot about the, the backdrop of, of Isaiah in the sense of, you know, all that this person was, where he came from, everything like that. But he spoke at this interesting time because while Isaiah is ministering and speaking, he's looking at this Assyrian nation as kind of the world power of the time that's imposing themselves against the northern kingdom. And, and Isaiah's been warning them and, and the, the northern kingdom is eventually going to be taken away into captivity by the Assyrians, but he's also warning now the southern kingdom that they're, they can be expecting the same fate if they continue on in this rebellion against God. And so he's looking to prophesy now of this future captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah, not to the Assyrians now, but to the next nation that would be on the rise, and that was that of Babylon. But like I say here, we're, we're coming out now of the difficulty and the darkness of kind of that judgment that God's been pouring out among Judah, the nations, the whole world in a sense in those first 39 chapters. And we're moving now into this light of God's goodness and grace. And make no mistake about it, we've already seen Isaiah look forward to these things and make allusions to the future plans of God in that first half of the book. But as we move into the second half now, that really begins to be the complete focus now of Isaiah's ministry and prophecy as he's looking to remind the people now ultimately the salvation of the Lord that's what the very name of Isaiah means isn't it it means his name means salvation is of the Lord that's the whole theme ultimately of the book of Isaiah it's the whole theme of the Bible and Isaiah encapsulates just really the whole theme and the picture of the Bible in in one complete book here now, up until now, like I said, Isaiah's really been speaking to the generation of his day. He's been warning them of, of that impending Assyrian invasion and, and this being the means of God's judgment upon them. But as we look at the second half of the book now, the, the remaining 27 chapters, Isaiah's going to be really focusing and speaking to a future generation of Jews who, who are going to become captives uh, in Babylon. They're going to be there in Babylon, sitting back, wondering, is this it? Is God done with us? Are we finished? Have we, have we blown it that much now that there's, there's no recourse here? But, but you see, Isaiah is going to be coming with this great message of comfort as he reveals to them that God is with them and that God's not done with them and that God is indeed going to deliver them. God's got plans for them. And it also serves as a preview to the whole restoration of Israel in the last days from the final Babylon power at work in the world that we see in Revelation chapter 17 to 19. And so it, it, it actually begins to look even more forward to a future day beyond what the future Jews are going to be experiencing in Babylon. So interesting, fascinating book filled with great prophecy here. Now, here's the great thing. Regardless of, you know, your situation here and, and whatever you might be dealing with, whatever might be even plaguing you today, 
we get to be those that can look to the Lord in comfort and be comforted by the Lord because of his goodness and his grace. And we're gonna be seeing over these next few chapters a, a, a term that's gonna be repeated oftentimes is a term fear not, fear not. And it's so true, we never need to fear and we never need to lose heart in this life regardless of what we're going through as long as we're looking to the Lord and understanding that, that God is for us. And that God is going to see us through. God's going to deliver us. And that's going to be the word to these Jews here sitting in captivity in a future day in Babylon that they don't need to fear. Be comforted because God's not done with you. God's got a work to do still. And God's going to hold on to you and preserve you and keep you and move you through. And that's the word for us here today. There's always comfort and hope as we look to the Lord. Now, what's interesting, let me just bring this up to you here too, because what's really interesting is that the content changes so drastically between this first half and the second half, between the first 40 chapters or 39 chapters and the next 27, the content changes so drastically from judgment and just darkness and dreariness to hope and comfort that people began to think that there's got to be a secondary writer to the book of Isaiah, that, that Isaiah wrote that first half, but then a second Isaiah, a second writer came on down the road, you know, after these things kind of happened even more. So, so, you know, because the things that Isaiah wrote about prophetically with such accuracy, people were like going, that's, that's so strange. How could somebody predict these things with such accuracy? And then the content changed so much that that there are these kinds of debates among scholars and you got these higher critics of God's word that say there were two Isaiahs. That's all. There had to have been two Isaiahs that wrote this. One in the original Isaiah's date, another one down the road here. And, and you know, they, people call them higher critics, but really they're just thinking in the low ground of, of liberalism and faithlessness. They can't comprehend the supernatural and so they try to explain it away and in so doing, they deny the very word of God. It's a sad thing that somebody can't sit back and go, well, yeah, God's at the, at the helm of all this. God's, God's the one that's speaking these truths and these words and these prophecies God knows. So as much as you might hear, there, there's some that will say to Isaiah. Some even try to claim there's a third Isaiah that, that wrote parts of Isaiah. So when you hear these things, I mean, you just have to go, Really? Are you kidding me? Because God knows. God's the, the author and the creator of all. He knows the beginning to the end and everything in between. And so we don't have to try, to try to reason this with our own thinking and logic, but rather just go by faith. Ah, God, God can handle this. God's got this, right? So we know God, he's all scripture. The Bible says all scripture is God breathed. It's given by by God, and it's nothing for one man, Isaiah, to write about these things in his time and in a future time, as, as will be seen. And so chapter 40 now is the, the first chapter of this new section, and it's quite fascinating to see the, the parallels, even with how this section begins, with how the New Testament begins. Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Chapter 40, verse 1 says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So the word goes out immediately to be comforted. Like I said, there's going to be that complete shift sort of in what's being said. And right away, the first word's comfort. Yeah, comfort my people. Don't fear, don't fret. Don't panic, don't, don't think that God's gone from you. Take comfort here, take heart. And so those are great words being given to him. Even though this, this people are gonna be in a very difficult and tough spot, no need to despair because God's watching out for them and he desires for them to know his comfort. And the period before Jesus came to this earth, in the same way, it was a difficult time. It was sort of a, a, a dark period, a period where there was those 400 years of silence where people were beginning to wonder, is God down with us? Are we... Have we moved away from God so much that he's just up and left us now? Because they hadn't heard much from him. They're, they were beginning to wonder, like, is there any hope for us? And yet right in the, in the midst of that darkness is when Jesus, you know, came shining through. And Jesus was delivered to this world to be the deliverer for this world. 
And, and as the scene opens up in the New Testament, we see that message of this hope and comfort as the Savior is being brought into the world. Look at verse three. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, when a, a, a king or a dignitary was traveling from place to place, they'd make sure they'd go ahead of the king and smooth out all the rough patches in the road so that, that king would have a smooth journey in, that there wouldn't be any kind of bumps along the way, that sort of a thing. And so all this would be prepared, preparing the way for the king. And, and that's exactly, again, what Isaiah is speaking to the people as they're going to be getting ready to move out of Babylon and be brought back to their own country, to their own land. Yeah, they had a rough road ahead of them as they'd be preparing to return back to Jerusalem and repair the city and the temple, but they needed to prepare themselves first. Prepare yourself. They need to straighten out the crooked areas and smooth over the rough places even within their own lives so they could receive the work of the Lord in their lives. And of course, we know that this passage that we just read, again, so fitting that this begins the second section, kind of the New Testament section of Isaiah, because this is how the New Testament begins. Who was the one that was coming forth to prepare the way in the New Testament? John the Baptist. As you've been with us going through the book of John, we saw that very clearly, that John was, uh, again, a fulfillment of this too, a future fulfillment of what we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 40, that John was coming and preparing people's hearts to receive the Messiah, to repent, to turn away from their sin so they could receive Jesus all the more. Look at verse six. And the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now the reason we should be those that are, are quick to yield to the Lord it is because, first of all, we're just very frail. We, we can't make it on our own, right? Man is but a, a fleeting fellow. We should have no problem laying our lives down in submission to his rule when we understand where we would end up without him. Because like what Isaiah is saying here, we're just like grass. We wither and we fade. We get chopped down very easy. We get scorched by the sun. We, we don't, you know... We struggle along sometimes. And I'm sure that would have been a great encouragement here for Israel to think of the Assyrians and the Babylonians in this light as well. They're not going to last. But what, is, what does last? As Isaiah says, the word of God stands forever. Verse 8, that's what lasts. See, those in that future day of Babylonians' captivity would be able to take comfort in God's salvation and deliverance because they're recognizing that God's word stands forever. And he says he's got, you know, future plans, a future and a hope for his people, that he's not going to leave them nor forsake them. They could be ones that are sitting in, in captivity going, yeah, i got to hold on to God's word because his word stands forever. It will not return void, as, as Isaiah 55, 11 even says. It's dependable and trustworthy. Here's some examples of that. Written on material that perishes, having to be copied and recopied for hundreds of years before the invention of the printing press, it did not diminish its style, correctness, nor existence. The Bible, compared with other ancient writings, has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. It's amazing how people will be so quick to hold on to the writings of, of Shakespeare and go, well, this is valid, this is true, and yet not carry the same kind of critique to the word of God. Or, or, or hold the same kind of authority or validity to the word of God, thinking it's, ah, oh, it's undependable. And yet look at all that survived and the manuscript evidence we have for it, more so than any other kind of writing that we've got. And yet still people try to refute God's word. Voltaire, the French skeptic. He, he was an infidel who died in 1778, and he said that 100 years from his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history and that the Bible would become a forgotten book. Only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used his press and his house to produce stacks of Bibles. How, how awesome is that? 
Doesn't God just have a sense of humor? God's like, oh, Voltaire, if only you knew. You better just stop while you're ahead here. But no. All right. So that's so good. Now, though the word of God endures forever, of course, thinking out of the audience that Isaiah is writing to, and he's writing again to that future people sitting in captivity, they would have been, they would have been wondering if God had forgotten about them, if God had left them. Is this really something I can hold on to? Well, look at verse 27 of chapter 40. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable. See, some of the Jews were beginning to think that their situation perhaps was being ignored. That God was like, yeah, that's it. I'm done with these people. Perhaps they felt that the Lord was getting a little tired of them. But here the reassurance comes from the words of Isaiah here that, that God is everlasting. And he doesn't need to take any breaks. He doesn't, need to, he doesn't faint or grow weary. And he truly understands and knows every situation. And his understanding of it exceeds our understanding of it. In other words, there are reasons or purposes for what we may go through that we don't even know. Do you, do you, do you take that into account sometimes when you're going through a situation and you're thinking, God, why? How could you let me go through this? Do you ever stop and wonder, oh, God, you know what? I don't get it. I don't understand. But I know you're at work. And I know you've got a purpose in this. And you've got an intended end to this that's ultimately going to be for my good. When we begin to reason that way and think that way, suddenly we begin to have that much more peace and comfort in the midst of those things to realize, God, you're with me here. You're not forsaking me. You're not letting me go. You've got purposes that go beyond my understanding. And if sometimes God were to let us know what his purposes are, we'd probably freak out all the more. Sometimes he has to keep us in the dark. It's like with my kids sometimes, right? There are certain things that I just got to kind of hold back from them. So if I let, them all, let it all out, they're going to probably freak out. And you have to just kind of just pace things a little bit. And God's kind of doing that here with Israel. But in those times of uncertainty and questions, here's what we do, here's what we do know. Here's what we can rely on. Look at verse 29, finishing that chapter up. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth, famous verse here, even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, we've all read that passage, but here's the context of it. Of a people that are sitting there going, oh, come on, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why have you abandoned us? Now, again, the immediate context here for these words is the people that would be having at a future time to leave Babylon and make that 900-mile trek back to Jerusalem where they would meet a pile of rocks that they've got to turn back into the temple and rebuild the city walls. Not a fun proposition right there. But here's what the Lord says. Ah, I'm gonna give power to the weak. And to those that have no might, I'm going to increase strength. Don't grow weary in this. They're not going to be alone. Everyone, e even, even youth, youth faint and become weary. Everyone is prone to stumble and fall. Everyone is going to succumb to weakness if they're relying on themselves. But, but here's the key. The Lord says those who wait on the Lord are going to be renewed. Those who wait on the Lord are going to be renewed. Now, that idea of waiting, we, I think, get twisted sometimes because we think, oh, okay. We think waiting is our time to just sort of do nothing and little R&R time for ourselves. It's kind of like our excuse where, where it's like, you know, oh, are you serving in the church? No, I'm not serving. I'm just waiting on the Lord right now to see what he has for me, right? You, you, you get that, right? You hear people do that sometimes. Hey, you know what? Yeah, I'm not doing too much. I'm just, 
I'm just waiting. And we, we're just waiting on the Lord. And we, we tend to make that sound very spiritual, more spiritual than it really is. But you know, the idea for waiting on the Lord is not this idea of just sitting back and doing nothing. It's serving. Think of when you're at a restaurant and you have a waiter. Could you imagine if the waiter was just sitting in a comfy chair in the corner and you're waiting for him to bring your food and he's just like, oh, no, 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 I'm just waiting. I'm just sitting here. And they're just saying, I'm a waiter and I'm just waiting. You'd think, no, that's not how it works. That's a bad waiter. You got a, a waiter, what do they do? A waiter's up and he's tending to you. He's serving you. He's ministering to you. He's, he's, he's there for you. And that's what we're to be doing as we're waiting on the Lord. We're tending to the Lord. We're ministering to the Lord. We're serving the Lord. We're not sitting back and being inactive. We're saying, God, here I am. What's the next step? What's the next word? What do you have for me? We're staying in close fellowship and connection with him. That's what it is to wait on the Lord. And those that do, what happens? They're renewed. They're renewed so much that they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How good that is. Now you can look at that and you kind of go, that, that order seems kind of odd. Wouldn't it be they walk and then run? And then it's all like, woo, mounting on wings of eagles. Shouldn't that be the right order? Why does it seem kind of out of whack here? Well, as we looked at the kind of just the greatness of God and God's work here, We've been seen through Isaiah just sort of soaring over the heights of heaven. And as we've done that, we perhaps become ready to run the race set before us. And as we are strengthened in this race, we become able all the more to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's exactly what Colossians 2, 6 calls us to do. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That's that pace of just consistency and being established in the Lord. Well, let's move on to chapter 41, verse 8. 41, verse 8 says this. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. Verse 12, you shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Just listen to the, to the love of God, the heart of God that he has for his people Israel, that he has for you and me. Because they've undergone great trials here, right? No thanks to themselves either. I mean, they kind of brought this upon themselves. But it's not been God's desire to just pour out kind of judgment and wrath on them. That's been the chastening, loving hand of God to redirect them. But he calls out to them now and reveals that he's still for them. He's chosen them. He's not forsaken them. He's not given up on them. All the nations, they're the ones that made gods. They had to hold up. But God is the one who holds us up, you see. He says he holds us up by his righteous right hand. All those nations that have come against God, many of those nations that we looked at in those first, that first section of Isaiah, they're gonna be no more. And with God being for us, then what do we need to fear? That's God's word to his people here. Don't fret, don't worry, fear not. I'm gonna help you. I will be your strength. And then in chapter 42, verse one, says this, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now God is speaking forth for the people to look upon and to take note of his servant. And he said for the people to behold the worthlessness of idols. In, in chapter 41, verse 29, when he said, indeed, they're all worthless. That's the same word, indeed, as it is behold in the Hebrew. Same word. He says, behold these worthless idols. But then he says, behold my servant, who is far superior, far better. He directs him to, to that which is truly worth taking note of. And he's ultimately pointing ahead 
to his servant Jesus. Now, throughout Isaiah, this is interesting, because throughout Isaiah, you have different terms that are being used for my servant or the servant of the Lord. Different, different people or groups that are being referred to at different times. Sometimes the servant of the Lord could refer to um, the, the nation of Israel. Chapter 41, verse 8 tells us that. It could refer to a, a, the godly remnant of that nation. Chapter 43, verse 10 speaks of that. That, that servant has also referred to David in chapter 37, verse 35. It, it is alluded to in, in Cyrus, as we'll see coming up here. But the context usually makes it very clear to us who is being referred to as my servant. And here in chapter 42, the reference is clearly to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at verse three of chapter 42. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now many, many people will, will see a picture of Israel in those words. Definitely a bruised reed, a smoking flax. No doubt that's kind of looking at some of the the. The, the trials and persecutions of Israel. There's truth to that, but, but they have not fulfilled this verse in the way that Jesus has. In fact, this passage is quoted in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verse 13 to 21, and it's being quoted there as being in reference or having its fulfillment in Jesus, very clearly, Matthew 12. And you see, this verse is so wonderful because it really reveals to us the heart and the ministry of Jesus towards us. See, Jesus hasn't come to smash people into submission. He's not coming to destroy those that are weak. He's not looking at you saying, oh, you're not worth it. You're too, you're too weak, man. I can't work with you. No, a bruised reed, he will not break. He looks to you and he comes with mercy and grace. Lovingly comes alongside See, the world looks at a bruised reed and says, and that's, just, that's not going to be any use for me. Can't do anything with it. It's not going to help. And they're quick to toss it aside. The world looks at a smoking fox and says, this is just going to drag me down and prevent me from moving forward. I'm just going to snuff it out and put it out of its misery that I don't have to think about it anymore. See, those that are losing hope or ready to give up often find no help or strength in the world because the world's reaction to those things or response to those things is like, nah, that's just gonna be a burden on me. But Jesus comes and he deals gently and tenderly with the bruised reed. He does not rebuke or berate those that are in a place of, of hurting. And those who are ready, uh, just ready to give up, he doesn't just say, yeah, I see, yeah, there's nothing left to do really. Can't really help you. You're beyond hope. No. He comes and he begins to flame, fan into flame that life and strength. The little bit that you've got. See, the smoking flax was a, a wick that was used in an oil lamp. And that thing may smoke for a little while, but you don't just give up and pinch it out and not use it any longer. Jesus, you see, desires to bring that into flame. And though you may feel like you're about ready to burn out, Jesus is able to bring that back into life. He's got a heart for that. And he knows what you're able to be and become in him and through him. And so in light of that, it says here in that passage we read that he will not fail nor be discouraged. I love that. He will not fail nor be discouraged, verse 4. So here's the thing. Don't you be discouraged. You may fail at times, but he never will. Hold on to him. Trust him. See what he wants to do in you and, and through you. Look at this in verse 8, chapter 42. I am the Lord, and that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Now, here in this verse, God reveals really his glorious name for us. It's Yahweh. Jehovah, Jehovah, meaning the self-existing one. In other words, God is everything to us. He is all we need. When he revealed his name to Moses in Exodus 3, 4, 14, God said, I am who I am. And here 
here we see through God's word, these terms of Jehovah and what he'll be, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi, Shalom, Ra, Sedekinu, Shama. And it means all that you see up there, the Lord will provide a sacrifice to our healer, our banner, our peace, our shepherd, our righteousness. The Lord is present. And because he's everything we need and is the only God, he, he's not gonna share his glory with another. There's nobody like him. There's nobody that compares to him. What a complete shame that it is that people begin to give credit or praise to things that are outside of God and give credit to those things for the very things that only God is able to do. God says, I'm not going to share my glory with another. And in the same way, we need to be careful what we do and that what we do, we do for God's glory. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to get caught up in a place of self-praise, self-accolades. We... We veil it very much so like we're doing it in a spiritual way, but where's your heart? Are you doing it to pump yourself up and to get recognition? Because God says, I'm not gonna share my glory with another. In other words, whatever work that's not done for the Lord and under the Lord is a work that's not gonna be recognized by the Lord. So we need to be careful that what we do, we do solely for the Lord because we know that we can do nothing without the Lord. Look at verse nine. And, and, and interesting, on that list here, I remember just our study in John on Sunday. In John chapter six, Jesus comes on and he says, I am the bread of life. Again, claiming himself to be all that we need. He's the one that not just sustains us, but he's the one that gives us life. Everything we need is found in him. He is the I am. Jesus was declaring himself to be equal with God in doing so. Look at verse 9, chapter 42. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Of all the so-called religious books, spiritual kind of writings that claim to be authoritative, the Bible stands out heads and tails above them because of one thing, fulfilled prophecy. God says here that before these things or these events even happen, he's already told us about them. He's already laid it out for us. How awesome is that? How cool is it that we get to go through God's word and see exactly how everything is going to turn out? Isn't that amazing? That he's laid it all out for us. That we get to see what exactly is coming our way. We get to see what what eternity to some degree is going to look like, what he has in store for us. See, God knows exactly what is going on. Before we even have a chance to worry about it, he knows and has that intended outcome through it. And that's why we need to be those that are living by faith, trusting in the Lord. Because we spend so much time worrying and being anxious and that's only because we feel out of control and we forget that God is in control and that he's already got everything laid out from beginning to end of what's going to happen. And all he wants us to do is simply keep our eyes on him and trust him through the process. Right? Amen? Are you with me? And I think, oh, the wasted time of fretting and fearing and being anxious. And I get it. I understand. It's not fun when we feel like we're not in control, but... God doesn't want you to be in control. He wants you to let him be in control and to take you through. That's why we need to rest in him, wait on the Lord. Those that wait on the Lord are gonna renew their strength. Trust him. Be found in him. Remember, when we look at what's going on, there's a lot to be anxious about, but just remember the world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. God's putting it all together exactly as he needs it to be. Now here in chapter 44 and 45, we see a perfect example of this. This is so cool. Book of Isaiah is just amazing. Chapter 44, verse 28. Here's what we read. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, 
and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Look at verse 45, or sorry, chapter 45, verse 1, continuing on. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Now, here's the crazy thing. God is now referring to this man, Cyrus. Only Isaiah is speaking this some 200 years before Cyrus is even in the picture. He hasn't even been born yet. He's 200, 200 years away from him even coming onto the scene. And this again reveals the incredible accurate foreknowledge and sovereignty of God that he knows the beginning to the end. And, and the temple wasn't even destroyed when Isaiah writes this. It's still standing. And yet Isaiah's having to write about Cyrus giving his command to go and rebuild the temple that the foundation shall be laid. And Isaiah's probably thinking, you're a little bit late on that. We've already built it. It's already standing. He doesn't know that it's going to be destroyed and that they're going to be taken away into captivity. Well, Isaiah's starting to see because he's, he's writing down the prophecy of the Lord here. But he's having to tell the people you're going to be taken away into Babylon. And then you're going to be allowed to return under Cyrus' leadership to come and rebuild the temple. It's amazing. All writing under the inspiration of God that a foreign king is going to give the decree for the Jews to return to the land and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And, and God, I mean, God is just so good. So he doesn't just, he could have easily just referred to a king, a foreign king. But he has to throw out, the man's name is gonna be Cyrus. How do I know that? Because I'm in control of everything. He could have easily said, you know, I don't know. Somebody might, you know, throw a left curve here and name him something different, you know. Name him Kyle or something. But no, he goes, I'm going to tell you that I'm in control because I'm going to tell you his name. It's going to be Cyrus. And that's exactly what happens. Now, it's interesting because as Cyrus comes to power and as he defeats the Babylonians, remember, he's the leader. The, he brings the Medo and the, the Persian people together, the Medo-Persian army, and they defeat Babylon. And he's notified of this very writing. And it was, it was through reading Isaiah that aided in Cyrus doing the right thing here. Here's what Josephus writes. And Josephus, the great historian, back in, um, back in uh, around Jesus' time here, he writes this. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind uh, him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision. My will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power and earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written, so he called for the most eminent Jews that were in Babylon and said to them that he gave them leave to go back to their own country and to rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and the temple of God, for that he would be their assistant and that he would write to the rulers and governors that were in the neighborhood of their country of Judea that they should contribute to them gold and silver for the building of the temple and beside that, beasts for their sacrifices. So Cyrus is just taken aback. Could you imagine? All of a sudden you pick up this scroll that was written 200 years ago and you're reading about you? Oh, be like, man, that's significant. That's some, that's some power in that writing. I better follow through on that. That's exactly what Cyrus does. Now, the way that Cyrus defeated the Babylonians is another awesome account and study, but we'll get to that when we get to our overview in Daniel. That's going to be a fun one, book of Daniel, coming up. So we'll leave it for that. We'll talk more about that whole scene in Babylon when this went down. Look at chapter 45, verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I've even called you by your name. I've named you, though you have not known me. I'm the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. Again, God would choose Cyrus and use him in this way for no other reason than to make himself known, to make God known. That's why God does what he does, right? When he's bringing Israel out of, out of Egypt and bringing them to the 
Red Sea where Israel feels trapped. God says, I'm doing all this so that my name may be glorified and, and that I might have honor over Pharaoh. God does what he does for his praise and glory. That's why we exist. So God has a plan for his people and that his plans are gonna prevail. And it's through these plans that he is seen as the only God that nobody can do the things that he does. Cyrus is preferred in order that Israel might be released. Cyrus shall have a kingdom, but only in order that God's people may have their liberty. You see how that's working? The Lord raises up one and he puts down another. Behind all the drama of human events today, there is a God who is planning for his church through affliction and persecution, chastening and tribulation to be perfected and prepared to inherit the kingdom of God. Alan Redpath said that. Wise words. Now, if God can do all this through a man who has not known me, God says, Cyrus hasn't known me, what could God do through the one who has even just a little faith in God, who is looking to the Lord to do a work through? Well, let's look at some of the most wonderful prophecies now of the coming Christ that we have in Scripture. Go over to chapter 50. Because here we see now all these different kind of sort of ways that Jesus is being portrayed. Chapter 50 describes his coming Christ as the submissive servant. Isaiah 50, verse six to seven says this. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. So the suffering servant here, or sorry, the submissive servant is how chapter 50 describes Jesus. Here's Jesus just giving himself submissively, allowing them to pluck out his beard, spitting on him. Chapters 51 up to chapter 52, verse 12, shows Jesus as the sovereign servant. Look at chapter 52, verse 7. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings and good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices with their voices. They shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10 the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So here we see God just, again, in control, revealing himself and the salvation that he is bringing. Chapter 53 now identifies Jesus, this coming Christ, the Messiah, as the suffering servant. Chapter 53, verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's interesting that Isaiah 53, and you can tie in Psalm 22, give us really the fullest account and, and the most detailed kind of picture and description of the crucifixion, more so than anywhere else in the Bible, more so than the Gospels even. It, it, very interesting. Again, what's fascinating is all of this is being written before crucifixion was even invented and used this wasn't a form of of execution or punishment in this day these things would have sounded very unfamiliar to the readers of isaiah it wasn't until the romans came along that they began to, to perfect and use crucifixion as their main form of execution it was a brutal painful way to die everyone knew that which is probably why the gospel writers don't go into a lot of detail about it. Because Book of Mark, for instance, just says, and he was crucified. That's it. They don't go into like what that meant because everybody knew what that meant. All you had to do was say it and people would just be cringing in agony, thinking about it, that Jesus had to be crucified. They all knew, but in this day, that was relatively unknown. And so there's great description, which again just reveals the accuracy and authenticity of God's word that well before that was even thought of, there's description being given of how Jesus would suffer and die. 
Look at verse five. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. See, it was for our transgressions and our iniquities that Jesus went to the cross. Just let that sink in for a second. These are beautiful words. This is a beautiful chapter that we're so grateful that God has put in, in, his, in his word to reveal to us what Jesus did for us. Jesus was completely innocent, undeserving of any of this, but he took his place among sinners to free us from sin. And peace could not come unless our sin was judged. The chastisement for our peace. Do you hear that? The chastising for our peace was upon him. The judgment we deserved was placed on Christ on the cross. And as a result, we've been brought near to God and we get to experience and enjoy peace with God now. In our sin, we trembled before him. You know what that was like. We felt so unworthy, undeserving. We trembled before God. But now God wants, to know, wants us to know that that sin has been taken, removed from us, so that we can stand before God in peace. The penalty of our sin has been paid for, and we stand in complete peace before God and with God. Ephesians 2 Verse 13, I don't know if I put that in here. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that by stripes we're healed. Now, some wonder that speaks of a healing physically, or are we just dealing with a spiritual kind of healing. I believe it can and does speak of both. Now we know we're healed spiritually because our sins are no longer held against us and that we're, we're saved now eternally. We're no longer condemned, right? We've been healed by, by his sacrifice, by the stripes that he was inflicted with for the penalty of our sin. We've been healed from that, set free from sin. And because of that, we're also gonna be given an eternal body. Think about that. That's the hope that we have now. A body that will no longer be sick, that's no longer going to suffer. It may be that we don't experience it fully yet, but it is a reality to come. It's a guarantee because of what Jesus has done for us. Some have taken this verse to imply that we should be walking in divine health today. That because of what Jesus did, we should be walking in full health all the time. And if we're not, we're just lacking faith, or there's some sin still in us that we haven't let go of. There are those that preach and teach that way. You can see some of the wackos on TV that still kind of perpetuate that sort of message. And the minute that sickness comes upon them, as it has and does, well, they either go into hiding or they will find some other excuse that maybe it's someone else's sin that's causing it. But we know, here's the deal, we know that healing is ours because of what Jesus did. And there's, there's times where he allows us to go through sometimes trials or sicknesses because it's further carrying out his better purposes in it. But here's the great thing is that we know it's a reality and a promise for us that one day we will enjoy full and perfect healing when we are with them. We're going to be made well. And that might be something that we get a foretaste today, but it's a reality that we can be looking forward to, no doubt, because of what he's done. It says in verse 11 of chapter 53, that he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. My servant, my righteous servant shall justify many. This is the great exchange that's been done at the cross. See, Jesus took all of our sin and he exchanged it for all of his righteousness. That's, that's an incredible work that I can't fully comprehend sometimes. 
He took all of our sin upon himself and bore the judgment of God so that he could exchange that for his righteousness. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a work he's done for us. He's justified all those who put their trust in him. That's what some call this vicarious atonement, this substitute. God treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat you and me like Jesus deserves to be treated. That's from Skip Heidsick. Let me say that again. God treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat you and me like Jesus deserves to be treated. How wonderful. And Isaiah includes a wonderful invitation now. For all of, This is not something that, again, Jesus has done just for the elect, for a chosen few. Just look over to chapter 55, verse one. Ho, everybody say, ho. No, don't do that, it's kind of weird, but here's how it says. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, Come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of David. See, nobody's excluded. The invitation is given for all to come to taste of the life that Jesus has for us. That's what we've been seeing in the book of John. The woman at the well, the crowd here with the, the bread of life. The invitation is given, come and partake. Experience the life that he has for us. What's the only requirement here? That you're thirsty and broke. That's it. Everyone who thirsts, you who have no money, hey, I qualify. I'm in. See, so many times we think, well, we need to do something. We need to earn it. We need to provide something. No, he says, no. Here's a requirement that you recognize you don't deserve it, that you can't do it yourself. That's the requirement that you're in need and he's the only one that can fulfill that need. Now, the end of Isaiah, as we wrap up here, the end of Isaiah literally brings us to the end, to the end of this life on earth here, and what God has in store. We see Jesus' ministry illustrated so well in these verses, so much so that Jesus himself quoted this at his first public sermon, claiming he'd fulfilled it in his day. Look at chapter 61. This is what I'm talking about here. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to comfort or to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So like I said, this really encapsulates Jesus' ministry so well. He quotes it at his first public sermon there in Luke chapter 4 to describe his ministry. But when Jesus quoted that in Luke chapter 4, he stopped after that comma, after verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's where he stopped. He doesn't continue on to say the day of vengeance of our God. That's significant and interesting. Dr. Harry Ironside preached on the comma that followed that phrase, acceptable year of the Lord, saying that the pause between it and the day of vengeance of our God has lasted 2,000 years. See, we're living in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, between his past work as the Lamb of God and his future coming at his second coming, between his past work as the Lamb of God, shedding the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, and then looking at his future work as the Lion of Judah where he'll execute God's righteous wrath and judgment. The first time he came, wicked men judged him. The second time that he comes, he'll judge them. 
So then we see Jesus carrying out this judgment that will be taking place at his second coming, an event we call the Battle of Armageddon. So just understand that. Chapter 61, verse 2, the middle of that, we're in that interim period right now where Jesus has come to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Today's the day of salvation. He's drawing in the bride of Christ by his grace. So people maybe say, but there's coming a time when he's going to return with that judgment of God, the day of vengeance of our God. And that second coming comes where he brings an end to the battle of Armageddon. Look at chapter 63. Because here that's mentioned or spoken of here in Isaiah. Isaiah writes about the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I've stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. Interesting. This is all spoken of with very similar imagery to what we see in Revelation 19. When again, John is speaking of that time of the end of the tribulation where the battle of Armageddon is taking place of all these nations coming together against the Lord and against his people. Revelation 19, verse 13 to 16. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who's that? That's us. Coming back with the Lord at his second coming. Because we've been raptured up during the tribulation. We've been in heaven with the Lord for seven years, and we're returning with him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. Oh, man. I get excited about that. That is going to be fun times, isn't it? Some of you love riding horses. Some of you don't like riding horses. You'll have seven years of training in heaven. If you're not into riding horses, you'll, you'll be in the grand equestrian in the sky, jumping over hurdles and stuff. Right, Eve? Where are you? Okay. Now, yep. Yeah. Sure. Fine linen. Sure is, isn't it? Yeah. We don't need to do much fighting because Jesus just at the word. And look at this here in verse 15 of Revelation 19. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he is on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't have to do much fighting because Jesus, just at the very word, can just bring an army down. Just like we saw at the, at the end of our last section in Isaiah, that historical period there, verses, or chapters 36 to 39, where that Assyrian army was camped out around Jerusalem. And in one night, the army or the angel of the Lord goes out and they are all just taken down. Just like that. So here's the Lord coming back. Just that word. And the armies are thwarted. But you see, remember, here in, back in Isaiah 63, who is this who comes from Edom? What is that in reference to? Many believe it's in reference to Petra, where when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, you are to flee. Israel is to flee, and many believe that they're going to be running to Petra, a very safe, uh, kind of natural sort of fortress, and they're going to be there in hiding. And many armies, I'm sure, will be making their way there, but what does it say? Jesus is going to come back. And the battle of Armageddon, I believe, is going to take place in kind of uh, different settings as you go through sort of the chronology of it all in different scriptures you see that there's different scenes Jesus is going to it's going to be like a campaign more than just a one-time thing campaign of different things but he's going to make his way to Petra and he's going to come back from Eden with clothes that it says that have been looked like they've been dipped in 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 red um, and just that blood Revelation talks about the blood that's going to come to the horse's bridle so it's going to be a, a pretty significant bloodbath that's going to be taking place there but Jesus is going to be the one that's 
bringing that deliverance and victory. Now, let's go to chapter 65. Because after this period of judgment and victory by Jesus, oh, what's next? Oh, it just gives way to the reign now and the peace of Jesus. The enemies are thwarted. And, and now it's time where he sets up that kingdom on earth. The world at that time is going to be restored to how it was before the curse. This is known as the millennial, millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Look at chapter 65. Go to verse 20. Chapter 65, verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. In other words, they're gonna live a long time. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Verse 24, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This is the perfect conditions that Jesus is gonna restore the earth back to during that millennial reign. Many believe it's gonna be restored to that perfect kind of paradise like it was before sin came and corrupted it all. Where people begin to live for a, a very long period of time. Perhaps live right through the whole millennium. But understand, what a glorious time this is gonna be, what an exciting time it's gonna be because here, we just said that we're coming back with Jesus at the second coming. We've been in heaven, in eternity already, in glorified bodies. Now we're gonna come back and we're gonna inhabit the earth. We're gonna reign and rule with Christ while other people that have survived through the tribulation with faith in Christ are gonna be brought into the kingdom. They're gonna continue to reproduce. So there's gonna be people in natural, physical bodies during the millennium while we're walking around in glorified bodies, kind of in forces of righteousness. This period of time Part of eternity is just going to be so exciting. I think I was telling you last week, it boggles my mind when I hear people say that eternity is going to be boring because they got the wrong view. They got the cartoon view of, you know, the little angel playing their harp on the clouds going, what? How did I end up here? You know, like, no, that's not what eternity is going to be like. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be exciting. We're going to see the world brought back. You know, Romans 8 tells us that, that all the creation labors and groans with with, with birth pangs, waiting for the redemption of the Lord. They all know it. They all know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Nature. They're all sitting here, creations going, we can't wait for the Lord to come back and restore things the way it's supposed to be. Isaiah tells us that when he comes back, the, that the trees of the fields are going to be clapping their hands. They're going to be having a holy hold on. It's going, yeah, Lord, all right. Let's do it. Let's get things back to the way it's supposed to go. And they're going to be dancing. Maybe not dancing, I don't know. I'll be dancing. They're gonna be clapping their hands, keeping me in rhythm. It's gonna be great. That's what Isaiah tells us. Man, it's so good to be a child of God. That's all I can say. Well, millennium's gonna be exciting. Thousand year reign. And it's gonna, it's gonna accomplish a couple things. First, like I said, it's gonna allow time for the earth to truly experience its redemption and healing. Not only is it hurting from the curse of sin, but it's going to be decimated during the tribulation. So it's a time where the earth is kind of restored, where we get to see what the world is like. Secondly, it fulfills God's promises to Israel. Specifically, that David will have a throne upon Mount Zion from where the Messiah would rule. So it fulfills that. I think, thirdly, you could say that the millennium is going to fulfill another thing. That so many people believe that I'm a sinner, not me, Personally, though, they do believe that, that I am a sinner, and it's true. But so many times people say, the reason I sin is because I'm just a product of my environment. It's, it, the reason is because of how I was raised, what situation I'm in. If I could get out of the situation, then I wouldn't be as wicked as I am. So a lot of people think that it's 
a, a result of the environment that they're in, that they are the way that they are. But the millennium is going to prove something because, you see, after the thousand-year reign where Satan is going to be in bondage, he's going to be tied up, chained up, well, he's going to be released at the end of the millennium where all these people that have been living in perfect peace and righteousness, perfect conditions, they're going to actually rebel against God. They're going to follow Satan. He's going to gather an army again in rebellion against God, and they're going to go up against God. Revelation tells us that. But then again, the Lord just like, boom, see you later, bye-bye, and they're taken out. But you see, what that shows us is this, that even though people are living in perfect conditions, the problem is not their surroundings. The problem is and always will be the condition of their heart. That man, if they're not willing to submit to the Lord, are going to be captive to their own sin and wickedness. And it's going to be proven in the millennium that they're going to follow Satan and his plans that are dumb and stupid because it ends in Satan getting thrown in the lake of fire. And that's when he meets his final demise is at the end of the millennium and then ushers in the great white throne judgment, the the judgment of those that have not put faith in Jesus all through time. And they too will be placed in their final dwelling in the lake of fire. But after defeating Satan once and for all, God's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth. See, it just keeps getting better and better. Look at chapter 66, verse 22. Chapter 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. All through eternity, we're gonna be rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. He has upheld his word. Israel's best days and yours as believers in Christ, are yet to come, my friends. Better days are awaiting us. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, allowing him to renew your strength in all these things. That's the book of Isaiah. Exciting book, fabulous book that we have here in God's word. Let me just, um, how are we doing here? Okay, let's just, let's just have a couple response things here. How does the book of Isaiah bolster your faith? Let's, let's, have some, let's have some interaction. Let's hear from some of you. What's some ways that, uh, that the book of Isaiah bolsters your faith? 